As we come now before the Word of God, uh, please turn in your Bibles if you would like to read with me to the book of Exodus in chapter 3. We're now several months here into the book of Exodus, so we've arrived here in chapter, chapter 3. And before we read, would you please pray with me? Our great God, we are about to handle holy things here. We know that your word is like fire, and Lord, would you cause your word to burn in our hearts, to purge us and to cleanse us. Lord, would you hammer away any hardness within us so that we would see and know you truly and that we would come to love you for all that you are. Guide us now by your spirit and help us to believe this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Exodus in chapter 3. I want to read this morning these uh, first six verses. So this is Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, and yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is God's word. Now, in the sections leading up to this scene, we have covered a lot of ground in a short amount of space. In my Bible, it's sometimes ordered differently in the structure of the page, but in my Bible, it just takes up one page for Moses to move from his birth through all of his young adulthood and now to where he is at the burning bush, which was likely somewhere around 80 years old. So we've got a whole lifetime here with just a little bit of ink. But now, here, something is different for Moses. This is where Moses meets his maker 
where Moses encounters his God. Moses will be here at the burning bush until the middle of chapter 4, uh, 4 verse 17. So it takes then almost two pages of ink to do that, which means then that the author gives more attention to these, let's say, 20 minutes, gives more attention to these 20 minutes of Moses' life than he gives to all of his previous 80 years combined. Something very profound is happening here that he wants to make sure we see. At this time in Exodus, the Lord is now stepping into the story that the people had cried out to help. They called out to their God, and God knew. And now God is going to do something about it by calling his servant Moses. If, uh, if we could read this entire burning bush scene all, all at once, uh, we would do that. I hope, maybe, if you'll uh, put up with we, me, we will do that in a future sermon. But at least here to get us started, to get the ball rolling here, we're going to have to take this burning bush scene in bits. So uh, we've just got these first six verses, and I'll even focus us a, a little more narrowly than that. Our focus today will really be the end of verse 5, in which we hear this. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground. So the question for us is, what does that mean? What does that mean? We hear things described as holy all the time. A lot of times the, the Bible uh, uses things, uh, phrases to describe things as holy. So we hear about, of course, the Holy Spirit or, or Holy Ghost. Same, same guy. Uh, holy Spirit. We hear uh, about the Holy Scripture or the Holy Word of God. We hear about uh, the Holy Land or Holy Days, which, by the way, is where we get the word holiday from these holy days. There are other phrases that sound like the Bible, but they're not. Uh, so things like holy relics do not come from the Bible, nor does uh, a description of Holy Mary or the Holy Grail. Holy Grail's not in the Bible. It's in Monty Python and Indiana Jones, but it's not in the Bible. And then uh, when we're surprised, we often describe things as, as holy. Holy cow. Holy smokes. You know, holy, holy mackerel or uh, holy moly. Is that, a, I don't, is that a word? Moly? I looked it up. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's just rhymey. Or, or sometimes there's a few other words that are maybe a little less, well, appropriate. Holy other things when we're surprised. What do we mean by all of this when we say something is holy? Not every time we say the word holy do we mean the same thing. Sometimes we don't even know what we mean, but we say it. But not every time do we mean the same thing, and that's true of the Bible also. There are different kinds of holiness or different meanings for holiness, but the kind of holiness that Moses is facing here when he is standing on holy ground. This holiness is similar 
to the holy thing that is first mentioned in the Bible, the first holy thing. Maybe you can guess uh, what it is. It's in Genesis chapter 2. Listen for the holiness here. Genesis chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The seventh day is a holy day or some translations translate this a sanctified day. Same thing as holiness there. So uh, what makes the seventh day holy then? We know uh, this is a day that is set apart from the others. Days one through six were days of creation, and then on this seventh day, it's a day of, of rest, that God made it Holy, that God set it apart, that he separated this day. That's what it means to be holy, at least here. Uh, to be holy, then, is to be set apart or to be separate. So in the case of Moses, the holy ground is a ground that is set apart and separate. Now, to help us try to get a little bit more of what's going on here and to understand this, I want to circle around this holy ground, really. Take a 360 view of it and look at the various elements that we see in this scene. There'll be three in case you keep notes. The first element I want us to look at is the element of fire in this scene. The fire. The, the bush is on fire here, but we're told that it's, it's not burning up, it's not consumed. Now, some critics of the Bible or skeptics of the Bible uh, try to explain this phenomenon of the burning bush away. So some people say that what is really happening here is that the bush is flowering with very bright orange or yellow or red flowers and that somehow that bright color looked like fire. Uh, some say that maybe uh, the sunlight was at just the right angle, at just the right time of day, that it, that it hit the bush, and you know how if you get that just right, then the bush glowed sort of like fire. And that's the explanations given for the, some of this. I wish I were kidding about that, but this is what real scholars, intelligent people sometimes say. That's not the case here. Moses is no dummy. Moses had been shepherding flocks in the wilderness now for several decades. Moses knows flowers when he sees them. Moses knows sunlight when he sees it. We're given here some of the reasons. Moses goes over, we're told specifically, to see why the bush is not burning up. He knows that there's a real fire here, but something is acting strange about this. So if you've ever been camping, or even just at home, you've got a little campfire out on your lawn, you know that you know, logs, if you set them out, they burn. Logs will burn a long time, but if you put the, the twigs with the leaves on them, ooh, it's pretty, 
right? You put the twigs on there and there's this kind of spark, a little burst of flame, but then uh, after the flash, it fizzles out. That's how a bush in this region would have burned. It would have burned in in a big flash and then gone out. And so Moses looks and goes, wait, why is that still burning? Why isn't it fizzling out? I mean, I'd be curious to see why, wouldn't you? Random bush on fire in the desert. This is happening because the Lord himself is in the midst of the bush. Now, as for the reason why the Lord would choose to reveal himself in the midst of a fire in the bush, we don't know. It's up to the Lord. Probably there is something to the fact that the fire and the bush in some way obscured Moses' vision of the Lord so that Moses would not look on the Lord directly. Probably also this would uh, highlight the fact that the Lord can take the natural laws of fire and, and bend them to his particular purposes, to his own supernatural ends. That's, a, that's what he's going to do in the Exodus plagues, after all, take natural things and bend them. But we do know at least that what he sees here is really fire, in the midst of which is really God. That's the first element, the fire. The second element I want us to look at here is the, the shoes. Those are shoes. Uh, so in the midst of the fire, God appears to Moses and he calls out to him twice. Moses, Moses. And you'll notice if you read carefully that when he calls, it is not because the Lord wants Moses to come closer. He calls because he wants Moses' attention. But actually, he doesn't want Moses to come any closer than he already is. He says, don't come any closer, but take off your sandals. Now, why does the Lord do that? This is not because Moses' sandals were dirty, as if his feet would be cleaner, you know, as if he could just take off his sandals to come before God. Even after Moses takes off his sandals, he is still not able to come any closer. If, if making ourselves clean before God were as easy as just kicking off our muddy boots... We wouldn't need the blood of Jesus to cleanse us and bring us to God. True cleansing of sin is a messy business. So this is not like Moses is a visitor in God's house and God has nice white carpets, so I'm going to just leave my shoes at the floor. The removal of the sandals here is not an act of cleanliness. It's an act of reverence not an act of cleanliness, it's an act of reverence. When Moses removes his shoes, this is to be an external sign of deep internal respect, even to the point of worship. This is part of Moses being humbled before the greatness of God. There's only one other occasion in Scripture where someone is specifically told to take off their shoes. Um, It's in the book of Joshua. 
right before Joshua fits the battle of Jericho, if I can get there, in Joshua chapter 5. And it seems as well here to be an occasion of reverence. Uh, Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And the man said, No, but I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? The commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. It seems here that just before Joshua is about to fight the Jericho battle, just as just before Moses is about to go in into Egypt, they are right before these great acts of God that are worked through them. Before they can continue, they must be humbled before God, experience reverence before God, and so take off their shoes. That's the second element. The final element here, the third. I want us to look at the mountain on which this happens. The mountain. We're told in the first verse that all this occurs in, uh, where is it? The west side of the wilderness. They came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So, do you remember that scene in Sandlot uh, where Smalls is, is learning who Babe Ruth is? And all the kids are getting together and they're trying to hit it in his, you know, Babe Ruth, the Sultan of Swat, the Colossus of Clout, the, do I forget the other ones, Titan of Terror, the, the Great Bambino, they all say. And the light goes on and Smalls goes, that's the same guy? He realizes in the moment that these are different names for the same person. That's happening here. This mountain is described here as Mount Horeb, otherwise known as the Mountain of God, otherwise known as Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, in just a few verses, in, in, in verse uh, 12 of this chapter, after the Lord tells Moses that after the Lord brings all the people out of Egypt, they're going to return to this very spot. They're going to return to this very mountain and they will serve him. And that happens. The Lord descends in fire upon this mountain and this is the place in which he gives Moses and the people the Ten Commandments, in which he guides them on how, is, how they are to live as holy people. Again, they will see the holy ground of Mount Sinai. Now, we might think or might assume that since this place is such a big deal, I mean, famous burning bush scene happens here, famous Ten Commandments happen here on this particular spot, we might think that this mountain would become some sort of sacred site to Israel, that it would become some sort of perpetual hallowed ground, that uh, there might at least be a sign that says, Moses had the burning bush here. 
But what we actually see is just the opposite. After the people receive the law of God at Mount Sinai here, they leave. And they do not return to this spot. They don't need to. We don't see any pilgrimages from the people to return to this spot. We don't see any shrines popping up around here where the people will come to pray at the spot and leave little trinkets. Uh, we don't see the ground, you know, glowing or pulsating because it's holy ground. In fact, we assume, we don't know, but we assume that after Moses leaves from this scene, after he walks away, that the bush probably burnt up. <laughs> or, or at least the fire went out. And that after Moses was gone, after the scene here was finished, that people could walk by this very spot and never know what had happened there. In fact, today, we're not even quite sure exactly where Mount Sinai is. Now, here is what this says to us. Nothing about the ground itself is perpetually holy. Did you get that? Nothing about the ground itself is perpetually holy. Which means that uh, what we call now the Holy Land, you know, the region of, of Israel, it might be a really cool place to visit, a place where you could learn a lot of things, see a lot of really neat things, but that Holy Land is not holy on its own. So if you were to be baptized in the Jordan River, it is no holier than to be baptized at Big Creek. If you were to receive the Lord's Supper in Jerusalem around the Passover season, that is no holier than if you received the Lord's Supper here in Rensselaer. And, and if you were to go and pray on the Mount of Olives just as Jesus did, that is no holier than if you pray at home or in your car. Nothing, nothing is holy or set apart or sacred on its own. Which means that when we see Moses here standing on holy ground, the ground is made holy in that moment because God is there. Because God is there and God is holy. That God is so set apart from us, so separate from us, so transcendent over us, that his holiness now is making the ground around the space holy. That the ground itself becomes set apart too, while the holy God is there. And when Moses experiences the holy God here, look at his response. It's at the end of verse 6. After this big encounter with the Lord, and Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. He hid his face. His felt response here as he encountered God was fear. And that is the right response.
a healthy fear in relation to God may sound almost foreign to us these days. It is common in so many circles to treat God casually, in a laid-back way, that we stroll into his presence like we own the place. And the reason people often give for doing such a thing is, you know, people might say, well, God, God loves us. And that's true. Oh, it's true. God loves you more than you know. He sent his son to die for you because of his love. God is love. But God is holy, holy, holy. Everything that God is, is holy. The holiness of God's very voice caused the ground of the mountains to tremble. Shouldn't it also cause us to tremble too? Why doesn't it then? It's not just that God is creator and we are the creatures, that God is above and we are below, but because God is righteous and we are sinners in his sight. That takes the gap of the holiness and just rips it open even farther that the gap ever widens. Which means that this gap between us and God, this separation of holiness, we experience then in relation to God a kind of tension in his holy presence. That we're not sure how to feel or what to do. R.C. Sproul talks about this experience in a book called The Holiness of God. I like small books. Um, I commend this to you if you're ever interested in finding something good to read. But he says this about God's holiness. We tend to have mixed feelings about the holy. There is a sense in which we are at the same time attracted to it and repulsed by it. Something draws us toward it, while at the same time we want to run away from it. And we can't seem to decide which way we want it. Part of us yearns for the holy, while part of us despises it. We can't live with it, and we can't live without it. The holiness of God causes a tension in us. He goes on then to describe the experience uh, of God's holiness, how some experience um, ghost stories or scary movies. You know, that you cover your face with your hand, but you kind of want to look through your fingers. Uh, and he gives a particular example, which I'm glad he tipped me off to because I was not familiar with this. Do you remember the old radio program, Inner Sanctum Mysteries? Anybody? Oh, a couple of nodded heads. Okay. This is from the 1940s. So a little before my time. Uh, but you can still listen to these on YouTube. It was an old radio program, which Inner Sanctum, by the way, means inner holy place. 
but this radio program was uh, a bunch of uh, scary stories. It was a drama, suspense drama show on the radio. And, uh, and it was famous for a few things. It would start off with this wavery organ music. You know what I'm talking about? It sounds kind of spooky. And, and it often starred uh, Boris Karloff, uh, the guy who was Frankenstein and in The Mummy. And he was the voice of the Grinch. Uh, if you know him from that. Uh, but, but Inner Sanctum, this radio program, the, their most famous little bit is they would open the show with, with the sound of a, of a creaky door opening. Like, don't make me do it. You know what I'm, what I'm after. Um, and so the way they got this sound is that the sound crew, you know, they've got to make everything. Oh, you can't see anything, so you have to listen to it all. And the sound crew, to make the sound of the squeaky door, tried a door, but it didn't work quite right, didn't sound quite right. And one day, one of them sat down and, on this chair, and it turned, and it squeaked. And they thought, that is perfect. So what you're listening to is the sound of a, of a squeaky chair as it turns. Well, one day, the cleaning crew comes in to the recording place of the inner sanctum and, of course, needs to clean up and oils this old squeaky chair. And so as they're uh, putting together this episode for air, they come to the point at which the door is supposed to creak open and they turn the chair and nothing happens. And so one of the sound guys had to do the sound with his mouth. The best he could do. Now, when it comes to this radio program, this, when it comes to the inner sanctum, if the curtain is actually pulled back and we see what is there, the holiness is lessened. It's not so separate, not so set apart. All we really see is a guy in a mustache sitting on a squeaky chair making sounds with his mouth. But when it comes to the holy ground of God, there is something truly different here. Something truly holy here. That if the curtain were pulled back, if the fire were to go out and Moses would see God, see the fullness of his holiness, he would see him as more holy, not less. He would not run in to give him a hug. They wouldn't sit down and chuckle and laugh. Moses would tremble and fall on his face because of the holiness of God. If you are not a Christian, the holiness of God is an especially frightful thing. If you do not put your faith in Jesus, your sin remains on you. And if it continues to remain on you, you will see the holy wrath of God upon you. And I shiver to think that. I don't say this to scare you, but just to tell you the truth. You need to repent of your sin before it is too late. But even if you are a Christian, even if you follow Jesus, even if you trust in the grace and sacrifice of Christ alone to cleanse you, even then you may not have to experience fear over your sin 
The wrath for your sin has been put upon Jesus, but still some element of fear of God remains. We want it to remain. We need it to remain. Because God is still holy. This is true then not only of God the Father, but also of his son Jesus. The disciples got to see a window into the holiness of Christ. I'll read here just a section of Mark chapter 4. They saw his power as they sailed across a sea. Let's see, Mark chapter 4. Where do I want to pick up? Verse 36. And leaving the crowd, they took him, the him there is Jesus, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And the other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion, and they woke him up and said, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Who then is this Jesus? You get to see his holiness through the fire, and this causes them not just to wonder about him, but to tremble, to want to look at him, but only through, through our hands would cause them to shake like a leaf on a tree in the presence of his holiness. And yet still, while they shake, they are drawn to follow him. We need this as Christians. We are not likely to stand on Mount Sinai and see a burning bush as Moses did but we do worship in the presence of a holy God. Christian, never forget, God loves you. God cares about you. God rescues you. God is also holy, holy, holy. His love is holy. His care is holy. His rescuing is holy. Let that sink in so that you can feel the weight of it. We want to let the reality of God's holiness cause our hands to quiver just a moment before we jump to handle the word of God. We want to let the holiness of God cause us to pause just for a moment before we skip through the threshold of his sanctuary. We want to let the holiness of God cause our lips to be quiet for just a moment before we pray even to a holy God. Jesus taught us to pray with the holiness of God on the forefront of our minds that when we pray, and we do pray, we should pray, when we pray, we would stop 
first and in a sense remove the sandals of our hearts. You remember, we pray it every week together, Jesus said, pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Holy be your name. And that's not just a statement of fact by saying, God in heaven, you are holy. He is. This isn't just a description of God. It's a petition to God as we pray. It's a request. It's actually the first request of the prayer that God would be hallowed in us. God would be holy to us. That God would cause us to regard him as a holy, reverenced God. And that actually sets the stage and the context for everything else that we ask from him. When we ask for his kingdom to come, we're asking for his holy kingdom to come. When we ask for his will to be done, we want his holy will done. His daily bread is holy bread. His forgiveness is holy forgiveness. His deliverance from evil is a holy deliverance from evil. All of these things would be made holy, special, set apart by God. This isn't just a bunch of squeaky chairs here. These are real things set apart and different by God for you. These are good for the Christian. God's holiness is life. For us. So, Christian, take off your sandals, for you are in the presence of a holy God. Would you pray with me? Mm. Lord, Help us, we ask, help us to ascribe to the Lord the glory due your name. Help us to worship you in the splendor of your holiness, Lord, as we meet you. Would you stir a fear in us that would draw us near through Christ? Thank you. For your holiness, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.